Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is a message brought to our church by a guest speaker. We hope that it is a blessing to you, and we would love to hear how God has used it in your life. It's good to be here this morning. As Pastor Fountain said, my name is Nathaniel Skelly. And I told the folks that were here yesterday for our Saturday sessions, I live in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, My wife and I just celebrated, Pensacola, Florida, that's right. Uh, My wife and I just celebrated uh, nine years of marriage, and we have three kids, Jaden, Judah, and Juliet. And so uh, it's great to be here with you all this this weekend. Thank you so much for for hosting me. Uh, So if you've been coming to the church for a a good deal of time, you, you know my dad. He's been here several times. So I've had several people tell me that I look like him. I guess I do look like him. I'm just a brown version of my dad, I, I guess is what, how I would describe it. But, um, but it's, it's great to be here this morning, and I'm so glad to, to start this new year, 2021. And just the, 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 the possibilities and the opportunities that a new year brings. And of course, we understand that the Bible contains the answers that we need for life. And so we're going to talk about money today. But Every aspect, everything that we need in this year and every coming year, it's, it's here in the Bible. God's Word has the hope and the answers for us, and so I'm excited to, to discuss some of those things today. As Pastor Fountain already mentioned, anytime we start talking about money in a church context, it's a little bit of a, oh, here we go, because that seems a very personal, very touchy subject. And it's like, well, do we really have to talk about that? Why don't we just spend time talking about mercy or faith or, or prayer? or let, Let's talk about something more spiritual, right? Well, why do we have to talk about something earthly and temporal and worldly like money? And the short answer is this. We need to talk about money within a church context because the Bible talks about money. Like, a lot. As you look at what the Bible has to say, there are over 2,000 verses that deal with material possession. So we understand that in our world today, we are a currency-based society. So every transaction essentially is a monetary transaction with dollars. Back in Bible times, they had currency, but wealth was measured by many different ways. Just not currency, but precious metals and land and livestock. And so when you really understand kind of material possessions and money in that sense, it really broadens that the Bible talks about it quite often. And not just the Bible, but as you look at the Gospels and the recorded words of Jesus, he talked about money a lot. He talked about it more than he did about heaven, about hell, about prayer, about faith. Not because money's more important than those things, but here's what Jesus understood. In order to connect with his audience, a lot of times he would use money to reveal a deeper truth about himself and about the Father. And uh, you think about how many parables that Jesus taught that talked about money, right? The lost coin, the parable of the talents, and and the pearl of great price. So money is talked about a lot in the Bible, and if we want to be Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, we want to follow this book, well, then we're going to need to talk about what it has to say about money. And so that's what we want to jump into today. And we have to understand, first of all, within the broad scope of Christianity, those that would, would call themselves Christians, there are some extreme views about money and how it relates to the Christian walk. And I would say there are uh, some incorrect views on either end of the, that spectrum. And so on one hand, we have what some people would call the prosperity gospel. And, and it's this idea that 
If you live a life for God and you are doing what's right, then you are guaranteed material blessings. That all you have to do is live for the Lord and exhibit faith, and you're going to have a nicer house, and you're going to have a nicer car, and you're going to get a raise, and you're going to have all of this nice earthly material possessions and money is going to come your way. And the Bible does not teach that. You're not going to find that in God's word. In fact, when you think about it, think about some of the most godly people who ever lived. Think about the Apostle Paul, who at the end of his life had to ask for somebody to bring him a coat because he didn't even have a coat. He was in prison, and he was about to be executed. Think about John the Baptist. Jesus said he was the greatest man born of women, and he lived like a wild man out in the wilderness. Think about Jesus himself. He said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. When he was crucified, his only worldly possession were the clothes that he wore. These were godly, righteous people. They didn't have wealth. But on the other extreme, so the prosperity gospel, the Bible doesn't teach that. But on the other end of the extreme, I see something that I would call the poverty gospel. And there's not so many people that would necessarily overtly teach this, but I think there's a lot of Christians that might think this or, 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 or uh, below the surface have this, this mentality that in order to be a good Christian, you won't have money. In fact, that if somebody has a lot of money and they are wealthy, that's evidence that they're really not a devoted follower of Christ because obviously they are materialistic, obviously they care only about earthly riches, but the Bible doesn't teach that either. And we can look at other examples of godly uh, uh, people who, who followed the Lord and had a heart for the Lord. Think about Abraham and King David and Job and people that were tremendously blessed by God in material wealth, but still live for the Lord. So what we have to understand this morning is that your net worth is not a barometer of your godliness. Instead, what we have to understand is no matter where God's placed us and how much he's given us, we have a responsibility to manage those things well. And by the way, here we are in 21st century America. By world standards, we are rich. By historical standards, we are rich. And so I know as you sit here in church this morning, you say, well, that's nice, but I don't feel rich, okay? Uh, we have all been given tremendous blessings by God, both historically and by world standards. And so therefore, we have a greater level of responsibility and accountability to God. And so that's a very serious thing. So uh, in this first session, what we're going to talk about is uh, how, or what the Bible has to say about giving. And, and tonight what I'm going to talk about is what does the Bible have to say about our spending and our saving. We're going to kind of combine two uh, messages there together. But this morning we want to look specifically at what the Bible has to say about our giving. And please understand, I'm about to kind of go into our introduction for all of these messages. And so the introduction to, the, to uh, this morning's message is about half of the message. So when I'm concluding the introduction, please do not worry. I know already that it's going to be a somewhat of a longer introduction. But it's an important introduction because we have to set a foundation to understand some, some principles. And then we can begin to unpack a lot of different scriptures and what the Bible says about giving and saving and spending. So let's start this morning in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to have uh, these passages here on the screens, and of course, uh, you are, are more than encouraged to follow along there in your Bible or on your phone or tablet or whatever you're using this morning, but Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Here he is on the hillsides overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds are gathered, and he's speaking to them. And right in the middle of this sermon, 
we find Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Notice what Jesus has to say on the subject of money. He says this to the crowd. He says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. So don't lay up earthly treasures because those will get decayed, those will wear away, those can be taken away. But, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And I don't want you to miss this, this next verse, verse 21. He says this, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Uh, growing up, did, did, did you have a, a parent that was constantly telling you to turn the lights off in the house, would seem to get mad every time you forgot? And as a kid, you're like, what gives? Like, what? It's the lights, so what's the big deal? Well, you didn't pay the electric bill, right? Your parents did, so that's why they were always yelling at you, turn off those lights. You're not using the electricity. It's wasteful. Because when you pay for something, when your treasure goes towards something, you care about it. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, where we spend our money is really an indication of our priorities. My, my dad would always, I, I, I heard him say this a million times growing up, he, as he would talk about money and talk about what God's word says, he'd say, you, you're, show me your checkbook, and I will show you what you care about. Show me your checkbook, and I will show you your priorities. And so, teens, just so you're aware, a check is this slip of paper that you can write, and you can actually pay people with it. They used it way back when Abraham Lincoln was president. I think it was back in the 1800s, something like that. So, I understand, okay, so maybe you don't use a checkbook, but uh, we can update it. Say, your credit card statement, your bank statement is an indication of your priorities. Where your money goes... That is what you care about. Have you ever ridden in the car with somebody who's, who's just gotten a brand new car? And they're like, don't eat in the car. <laughs> nope. And they, they, when they go park in the parking lot, they park way far away in two spots so nobody pulls up next to them and, and accidentally opens their car and scratch. Right. Because they paid a lot of money for that car. They care about that car. Maybe you've gotten a new outfit and you've got kids, and you're like on high alert for them not to spill juice or whatever they happen to be eating. Because when you spend money on something, you care about where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In order for us to be faithful Christians in this area of money, we have to understand two foundational principles. So, so if you have the notes and you're, you're jotting notes today, here's, here's the first blank. The first principle we have to understand, the first foundational principle is the principle of ownership. Ownership. Our money belongs to God. Our money belongs to God. And as I say that this morning, there's probably not many of you that would, that would kind of push back at that statement. Like, no, it doesn't. I think intellectually we understand, yes, yes, everything is God's. But that truth has to really permeate us and, 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 and come down to the core of who we are. Yes, it cannot just be an intellectual belief, but it has to, has to actually manifest itself in our actions. Now, let's, let's walk through this. Let's build the case here. Again, not that I think you're, you're necessarily disagreeing with, with me this morning, but let's see what the Bible has to say about ownership. Let's look first 
at Psalm 24 and verse 1, the Bible says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell within. Makes sense. God created our world, so all of creation, the plant and the animal life and all that we see around us, it's God's. He made it. He created it. And then Job 41 verse 11 says, Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. So not just our earth, but really our our entire universe and the stars and the planets and all the things that exist within our solar system and within our universe, it's all God's creation. It belongs to him. He made it. Okay, we understand that. But let's take it a step further. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 and 20 says this, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. See, as Christians, we, we, we know that when we commit our life to the Lord, we place our faith in him and him alone, that the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells our, our lives, and that our bodies even are not our own. They belong to God. It says in verse 20, For ye are bought with a price. That's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So not only is creation and the world and the things we see around us, but even our bodies belong to the Lord. Not only that, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18 says this, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Interesting. So God is the one who even gives us the skills and the time and the energy and the opportunity to go out and make the money that we have. 1 Samuel 2.7 says something very similar. It says, the Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. Do you understand this morning that whatever you have today is only because God allowed you to have it? And it's all his. And by the way, even though you have it right now, it can be taken away at any time. Uh, worldly riches are fragile. And we have to be careful not to get lifted up in pride and thinking, look at all this money that I've made. Look at this house that I bought. Look at this car that I drive. Look at the salary that I make. It's all mine. I did this. Mm. But did we? Or was it God who even gave us all of those things in the first place to be able to have what we have? We need to be careful. We need to be wise to remember where it all comes from in the first place. Let's look this morning. We're going to look at two examples of people in the Bible that were confronted with the truth of ownership. They were confronted with the reality that ultimately their possessions were not their own. And they had two very different reactions. Let's look first of all at Matthew chapter 19 and starting in verse 16. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. The Bible says this, And behold, one came and said to him, this is Jesus, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So this young man comes up, says, Jesus, uh, what do I need to do to have a home in heaven? What do I need to do to have eternal life? And he said unto him, here's Jesus' answer, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. So, hey, young man, if you can keep God's commandments perfectly, you can have eternal life. And then the, the young man follows up and he says, he saith unto him, which? Well, which commandments? Which ones do I need to keep? Jesus said, 
Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So here's six commandments for you to keep. And maybe as you're reading this as a Christian, you think, hmm, that's an interesting answer from the Lord. I mean, aren't we supposed to place our faith and our trust in him and him alone? That's how we have a home in heaven. Why is he telling them to keep the commandments? Well, the reality is, if we truly could keep the commandments and be perfect and never sin, we could have eternal life. So the answer is technically correct, technically correct but Jesus is, he knows what is in this young man's heart. He knows what his problem is. He knows what is keeping him from following Jesus. And so he's going to pinpoint it. And so Jesus knows where he's going. He's setting up this young man to really expose the thing that separates him from following the Lord. And so he says, well, if you keep these commandments, then you'll have eternal life. And then notice what the young man says. Uh, the, uh, here in, in, uh, the young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. So check, 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 check. I've done all those. And by the way, he had not done all those. He thought he had done all those perfectly. But uh, regardless, he says, what lack I yet? So if I've done all of those, is there anything else I need to do? And here's where it is. Here's where Jesus pinpoints the one thing that, that was keeping this young man from following the Lord. Jesus said unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, this rich young man was confronted with the truth of ownership. And Jesus said, if you really want to follow me, then you need to acknowledge that it's not yours. And you need to give it away. And then you can follow me. But he knew that that was what was going to keep that young man back. See, the young man was not willing to embrace the truth of ownership. And when it came down to it, he said, I can't do that because it's my money. It's mine. I can't give it away. Mark it down. If Jesus is not Lord over your money, then he's not Lord over your life. If he does not have the authority to tell you what to do with your money, then he is not God in your life. Your money is. You've placed your money at at greater importance to you than God. And that's a sobering reality. But let's look now, secondly, at another example of somebody who is confronted with the principle of ownership and had the right reaction. Well, before we do that, let me, uh, let me share with you a quick story. So over Christmas, uh, we went up to Virginia to visit my, my family, uh, my parents for Christmas. And I said, I, I have three young, ch- young children, five, three, and then our daughter, Juliet, is going to be two here in, in a week. And so uh, she, in our house, we have a lot of toys, but a lot of the toys are for her brothers. And so a lot of them are cars and dinosaurs and Legos. And so she doesn't have a lot of toys that are her own. So for Christmas this year, my parents got her a little tea set. And she was loving it. Like, I mean, right away, immediately after we were done opening presents, she got her tea set out and she set up, got her stuffed animals and she was making tea and giving tea to the... And I mean, not even a half hour after we were done opening presents and we're just kind of hanging out there in the living room area, I hear this scream from my daughter and she's saying, no, no, mine. And see, one of her brothers had gone and tried to take one of the cups from the tea set and she was not having it. No, this is mine. No way you're going to take away this toy from me. 
And even though that's kind of a, a silly example, in some ways it's kind of cute, I can't help but think that that must be from God's perspective how he sees how immature we are about our money, that, that immediate, at, at the first suggestion that we would be generous or that we would share or that we would use what God's given us to help others, our, our immediate reaction is, no, mine, how dare you tell me what to do with my stuff? And what we have to remember is, it's not ours in the first place. It never belonged to us to begin with. Let's look at Luke chapter 19 and verse 8. Luke chapter 19 and verse 8. So this is the story of Zacchaeus. Do you remember the song? Maybe you grew up in, in Sunday school. You, you sang the song about Zacchaeus. Maybe not. I'm not going to sing it for you this morning. You do not want to hear me sing that song. But Zacchaeus was a publican. He was a tax collector. And he lived in the city of Jericho. And by the way, in that time frame, in Israel, because they were under Roman occupation, the Jews hated the Romans. They were the oppressors. But the Romans would enlist people of that country, to collect the taxes. And so here's Zacchaeus, a Jewish man who's working for the Roman government. And not only is he working for the oppressors, but he's helping them to collect tax money from the people. So you can understand why they would hate somebody like Zacchaeus. And not only that, to make matters worse, in that day, the Roman uh, Empire would, would determine, okay, we need to have uh, this, amount, uh, this amount of tax revenue from this community. Here's what you're entrusted with collecting. And if Zacchaeus could collect more, then he would be able to, to keep the difference. And so tax collectors, publicans, were notorious for bribery, for corruption, for extortion. This man was hated by his own countrymen. And so here's Jesus coming through town, and Zacchaeus wants to see him, but the crowd is really big. He can't see over the top of people, so he climbs up in a sycamore tree. And as Jesus walks by, he stops and he turns and he looks up at Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm going to go to your house and I'm going to eat there today. And the people in the crowd are they're, they're, they're confused, they're perplexed. Why would he go to Zacchaeus' house? Out of anybody in the community, that's like the last guy you would want to spend time with. But notice what happens when Zacchaeus encounters Jesus. He has a life-changing event. He places his faith. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. But notice how it manifests in Zacchaeus' life. In verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and he said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Jesus, here's what I'm going to do. I've been changed by my encounter. I know that you are the Messiah. And immediately he understood the truth of ownership. All of a sudden, because Jesus was the Lord of his life and no longer money, he was willing then, instead of holding everything with a clenched fist, to now open his hands and say, Lord, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give half of my stuff to the poor and anybody that I've defrauded, anybody that I've done wrong, I'm going to make it right. And I'm going to pay them back fourfold. And notice what Jesus says to Zacchaeus. He doesn't say, that's great, Zacchaeus. That's a really generous gesture. No, he says this. Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. See, Jesus understood that what had happened in Zacchaeus' life is that he had placed his faith and his trust and Jesus was Lord of his life and now all of a sudden his money was no longer his own. It was God's money. And he was ready to be generous and give 
because he understood that principle of ownership. When you realize something is not yours, it changes your attitude about it. So if we know that our money is not ours, but it's God's, then the question should be, well, what does God want me to do with his money? If it's not mine, it's his. Shouldn't he have a say in how it's used? So this leads us to our second foundational principle, and that is stewardship. Stewardship. We are to manage God's money. And by the way, that's what a steward is. A steward is a manager. A steward is somebody who is entrusted with something that belongs to somebody else. And so they have a responsibility and accountability to make sure that the wishes of the true owner are followed through because they're just in a temporary position to manage those resources. So let's look now at Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. This is a longer parable. For sake of time, we're not going to read through the entire parable. I'll just read the first few verses. Matthew 25, verse 14. Here's the parable of the talents, one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever taught. It says this, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And Unto one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. So here's what happens. Uh, This very rich uh, owner, he's going on a long journey, he takes his servants and gives them different amounts of money. And that's what a talent was. It was a, a denomination of money. And there was a lot of money in those days. Uh, but he doesn't give each servant the same amount of money. He gives one five talents and two talents and one talents and says, you're going to take care of this for me until I get back. And so the first two servants say, great, we'll take on that responsibility. We'll make sure that we manage this well. They go, they make some savvy business decisions, and they double their uh, master's money. They take it from five to ten, from two to four. But the third servant does not embrace his responsibility. Instead, he has the attitude of, man, that seems like a lot. I don't want to mess it up. Uh, I'm kind of afraid of what might happen if I make a bad decision. I'll just go and bury the money. That way, it won't be lost. He'll get his money back when he returns. And in the story, what we find is when the master does return, he commends the first two servants. He says, well done. You embraced your responsibility. You understood what was expected of you, and you did it. But the third servant, he reprimands. He says, you were lazy. You were fearful. You did not embrace your responsibility. You should have at least taken it to the bank so it could have uh, gotten some interest, but no. You just buried it in the, in, in the ground, and now you return to me this one talent, and it, the talent is taken away from him and given to the one who had five talents. And we look at this story and we say, well, what, what can we learn? What is the Bible teaching us? And sometimes we use the application of, well, God's given us different abilities, and God's given us different skills. And that's true, and I think that's a, a, a good application of that parable. But also, the parable is about money. And another uh, valid application would be God has not given all of us the same amount of resources. You understand that this morning. We're not all entrusted with the same amount of money, but that doesn't mean we're not equally responsible. See, God does not expect the same results from you that he would from somebody who has lots and lots of money or somebody who even has less money. God's not looking for equal results. What he's looking for is equal Faithfulness, And so we can't sit here this morning in church and say, well, you know, uh, Nate, I, I, I don't have a lot, you know, I don't make a lot of money, so I don't really think God cares too much how I spend my money and how I use it. That could not be farther from the truth. See, 
God's not looking for the same results. He's looking for us to be faithful with what he's given us. So let's look now, let's look at Luke chapter 16, verse 10 and 11. Luke chapter 16, verse 10 and 11. Jesus says this in verse 10. He says, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, that's money, mammon is, is material wealth, who will commit to your trust the true riches? What's Jesus saying? He's saying how you handle the little bit that you're entrusted with is an indication of what you'll do with a lot. And if you're responsible with a little bit, you can be responsible with a lot. But if you're undisciplined and not serious with a little bit, then why would you be entrusted with more? And if you can't handle earthly riches, if you can't handle temporal riches, then why would God want to entrust you with something much more precious in eternal riches? You see, the principle here is how we do with what we have now is something that is extrapolated to what we will do with what we would have if, if we were given more. So I think some of us maybe have the idea that, well, if I won the lottery, if I you know, had a really distant relative leave me millions of dollars, I would be so generous. I would give so much to the church and to missions, and I would help so many people, and I would do this and that. I would open this kind of account, and I would save here, and I would make so many good decisions if I was just given a lot of money. That's not how it works. If we're not willing to, to be disciplined and take responsibility with what we have now, we should not expect to be entrusted with more. If you're a manager, if you're a boss, who are you going to hire? Who are you going to promote? You're going to promote the person who eh, shows up last possible second, looks at the clock, can't wait to leave, leaves as soon as they're able to, does a mediocre job, kind of half-hearted, or are you going to promote the person who has a great attitude and is constantly looking to improve themselves and takes ownership of their role? That's the person you want to promote because they've been faithful with the little bit that they've been given, and therefore they are entrusted with more. That's what the Bible is teaching us. And so here's the question we have to ask ourselves this morning. Based on your management thus far, should God entrust you with more? Honestly. Before the Lord, how you've done thus far with what he has entrusted you with, should God entrust you with more? And maybe the answer is yes, maybe the answer is no, and if the answer is no, then let's take that responsibility seriously. And let's say, Lord, I, I acknowledge not just intellectually, but I acknowledge in how I handle my finances that it's not mine. It's yours, and I am responsible, and I am accountable to you for how I manage your money. So that was the introduction. I told you that was going to be the halfway mark for our message this morning. So now let's look at three statements about our giving. What does the Bible say about giving? Number one this morning, giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. You know, this morning we've come to, to worship the Lord. A lot of times we call our Sunday service the worship service. And we think of worship usually in terms of more emotional experiences, our singing and our prayer and our meditation. This is worship to the Lord, and certainly it is. Those are expressions of worship. But did you know 
that when you give, that is also worship. The word worship is a shortened version of worth-ship. Worth-ship. Worship is placing worth and acknowledging the value of that which is most important in your life. You worship what you place the highest worth in your life. And so when we give, what we're doing, what we're acknowledging is God's worth and his value and his preeminence and his priority in our life. And so it gives a different meaning when we are not just putting a check in an offering plate or making an online contribution. We're not just making a financial transaction, folks. We're expressing our worship to the Lord. Let's look now at Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. Paul here is speaking. He's on Mars Hill. He's speaking to a large crowd. He's giving uh, a gospel presentation. And on Mars Hill was all of this idol worship, all of these pagan gods and statues all around. And here's what Paul says to the crowd. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Hey, folks, I know you see all these different pagan gods and these Greek gods that are being worshipped. The true God is not in these buildings. He wasn't made by hand. He's not some stone statue. Instead, at neither, uh, uh, excuse me, in verse 25, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Don't miss that phrase there as though he needed anything. See, God is not some stone statue that's carved out that needs our care and needs to be propped up and needs to, uh, to be cleaned. And to... No, he's the creator God. He has given us all things. You understand this morning, God doesn't need our money. Okay? God's not up in heaven wringing his hands. Oh, man, there's just so many things I would love to do in this world, but... Moses Lake Baptist Church is just not on board yet. So until they start to give a little bit more money, then I'll really be able to do some stuff. No. God's sovereign. God's all-powerful. He is omnipotent. His will is going to be accomplished, whether or not we are a part. But we have the privilege to be able to be a part and to give and to express our worship in what he is doing in the world today. Let's look at Philippians chapter 4. And verse 18, Philippians 4 and verse 18. Paul here writing again to the Philippian church, he says, But I have all and abound. I'm good, folks. I have what I need. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So here's Paul. He's on his missionary journey. He's doing gospel work. And the Philippian church has taken up an offering, and they've sent him some money. And Paul says, thank you. I am good. I have received from Epaphroditus. He gave me the money that you all collected for me. But then notice how he describes that offering. See, that monetary support of my ministry was, in God's eyes, a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. See, the money that Paul used to buy food and get transportation and lodging, that was helpful. That helped him. But in God's sight, that was just like a sacrifice offered in the temple where the smell and the aroma would would rise up to heaven and God would be well pleased. Literally a description of an act of worship 
Old Testament worship in the temple. That is what our our giving looks like to the Lord. So when you are, are part of supporting the work of your church and of missions and of those that are giving the gospel here in Moses Lake and around the world, yes, you're helping people to buy food and transportation and have a place to live, but really, in God's eyes, it's an act of worship and it's well-pleasing to him. And that's an encouraging thought. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11 tells us about the wise men, remember, who came from the east when Jesus was born. And, uh, and, and when they were coming to the house, Matthew 2, 11, verse, uh, 2 verse 11 says, when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. So these men have traveled for a long time. They finally reached Bethlehem. Here's the young child, Jesus, with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Remember, they first came to Herod and they said, uh, where is he that's born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. And how did they worship him? Notice what they do. And they opened their treasures. They presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, these are not stocking stuffers. These were very valuable gifts. They're precious. Lots and lots of money for gold and for frankincense and for myrrh. And, and what were the wise men doing? They were showing, they were demonstrating that Jesus, the Messiah, you are so valuable to us. We, we express so much worth that we place upon your life that this money that we spent on these gifts is, is well worth the expression of our worship. So giving is an act of worship. And all throughout the Bible, we see this pattern of giving God what's first, giving God what's best. We talk about the tithe in the Bible. The tithe is a 10%. And, and the word that's often used to describe the tithe is the first fruits. Because back in the Old Testament time, remember, monetary currency, back in those days, currency was not necessarily how the economy moved. A lot of times, people's value and their, their monetary capacity was in their crops. It was in their what they grew. That was how they earned their money. And so what they would do is they would take the first 10%, the first fruits, literally the first of their harvest, and they would use that and give it to the Lord. Give God what's first. Give God what's best. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the priest, the 10% of the spoils of war that he had won. The first city conquered in the promised land was Jericho. And God said, don't spoil that city. Don't take any of the stuff from that city because it's the first city. The other cities that are to come, you will be able to take spoil from those. But this is set aside. This is special. The acceptable sacrifice was a spotless lamb. When you offer a lamb to the Lord, you don't just grab any lamb out of the flock, you grab the spotless lamb, the best lamb. The firstborn was often dedicated to the Lord. The firstborn would receive a, a double portion of the inheritance. By the way, folks, as the firstborn child, my dad is a pastor. He should know better that I deserve a double portion of the inheritance. He has not come around on it. Please pray for him uh, that he would see what the Bible really teaches. But all throughout the Bible, the first and the best, right? We place priority and worship to God by giving him the first and the best. Number two, not only is giving an act of worship, but number two, giving is an act of faith. Giving is an act of faith. When we give, we're demonstrating our faith that God's word is true. Because if this book is not true, and you give away lots and lots of your money, Kind of a loser, right? Because you're not getting that money back, right? 
that all that money you give to your church and to missions and to people who are poor, well, that's money you could have spent on a new car. You could have a nicer house. You could buy a new phone. You could do lots of stuff with that money, right? But we believe by faith that that money is not lost. That we're not just frittering money away that we could have enjoyed and at the end of our life it's going to be, well, too bad, so sad. No, no, no. We're making an eternal investment. When we give, we're showing our faith that God's word is true. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says this, Charge them that are rich in this world. By the way, who's rich in this world? All of us are. Right? So this is for us. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. Don't be proud. Don't get lifted up in arrogance because you have money. Nor trust in uncertain riches. Don't place your hope and your trust in your bank account, your 401k, your, your equity in, in the house. Don't place your trust in that. But in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Paul is telling Timothy, hey, Timothy, here's what you need to tell the rich people in your churches, the rich people that you come in contact with. Don't be proud. Don't trust your, your, your wealth. Instead, use your wealth to do good. Be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. In other words, be ready to be generous. Be ready to give. Remind those that are rich, Timothy, that they have a great opportunity and even, I would say, a responsibility given to them by God to use their wealth and to use their money for God's work. Laying up, and this is not all, it doesn't end there, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And by the way, when they do that, they're making an eternal investment. They're laying up treasures not on earth, like Jesus says in Matthew 6. They're not laying up treasures on earth, but in heaven, where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't break through or steal, where they are permanent. Don't trust your riches. Instead, we show faith in God by laying up our treasure in heaven. Let's look now at Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 17. Proverbs 19 verse 17 says this, He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given he will pay him again. Again, showing faith. How is giving an act of faith? Because when we give to those who are in need, he who... uh, hath pity upon the poor, lendeth to the Lord. When you help those who are in need, those who are struggling, when you are generous, you're also really giving to the Lord. Yes, you are helping them, but that gift and that generosity is ultimately directed to the Lord. And the, and the Bible says, he, uh, that which he hath given, he will pay him again. How does God pay us again? Does that mean, oh, 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 I get it. I sow a seed and I give $1,000, and then I get $10,000 back. That's how it works, right? No, sometimes God sees fit to bless us materially in this lifetime. Sometimes that happens. But all the time, our giving is an eternal investment and something that we will reap one day uh, beyond this life. So giving is an act of faith. Remember how in Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the king and the servants and how the king's going to say to the servants that uh, when I was uh, hungry, you gave me food. 
And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. And when I was in prison, you visited me. And the servants, and the king here, of course, is, is, is the Lord. It's God the Father. And the servants will say to him, well, we don't remember doing that. Well, when did we give you food or give you? And the king is going to say, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Remember, when we give and we help and, and we're generous to those who are in need, we're giving to the Lord, and there is an eternal investment that's being made. So giving is an act of worship, giving is an act of faith, and then thirdly, this morning, giving is an act of love. Giving is an act of love. Let's look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. Paul says this, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. They're a rich church. He says, I would love if you would give or take an offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are hurting. And Corinthians, you don't have to give. I'm not speaking by commandment. You're not obligated to give here. But this would be a great opportunity to prove the sincerity of your love. Corinthians, if you give to the saints at Jerusalem, this would be a great demonstration of your love. And, by the way, remember, Jesus was rich, and he had eternity in heaven, and he had fellowship with his Father, but he became poor for us. He gave it all up. He came to the earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for us. He became poor so that we could be rich, so that we could enjoy heaven and have fellowship with him forever. And so that would be a good example to follow, Corinthians. Just like Jesus showed love and gave, this would be a great opportunity for you to show love and to give. Let's look now at Luke chapter 10 and verse 27. This is an interesting side note because Jesus here is talking about the call to discipleship. And he says, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you're going to have to be willing to give it all up. Family relationships, you will have to take up your cross. You will have to be able to, you have to be willing to give up everything to follow me. And then he gives an illustration and he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. And, and he, being willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Excuse me, I, 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 I got my, my passages mixed up. This is, this is uh, the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So here's Jesus. He's having this conversation. This man comes up to him, and he says, What do I need to do uh, to inherit eternal life? He says, Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, Well, who's my neighbor? well, who do I have to love? Who's my neighbor? Is it like people in my country, people in my neighborhood, people in my city? And then Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and, and in that story, there's a man who's been beaten, he's been robbed, he's on the side of the road, he's being left for dead, he's, he's terribly injured, and a priest goes by. It's a Jewish man, and a priest goes by, he should be the one that helps him, but he doesn't. He doesn't want to get involved. He just passes by on the other side of the road. And then a Levite, Another uh, fellow Jew, he walks on the side of the road. It doesn't help the man. But then a Samaritan walks by, and the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were considered inferior. There was, there was no goodwill between Samaritans and Jews. But the Samaritan has compassion. He puts the man on his own donkey. He takes him to an inn. He pays for his treatment. And he tells the, the innkeeper, he says, take care of this man. And when I come back, if you've had to spend any more money to take care of him, I'm going to pay the difference. And Jesus says, who was his neighbor? 
And they said, well, the one who showed compassion. He said, yes, go thou and do likewise. You see, the one who truly loves is the one who gives. That's the point of that story. If you love somebody, you're going to, to give to them. There's a quote there, I believe I have it in your notes. It says this, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can make a donation, you can make a transaction, you can give without really caring about the people to whom you're giving. But if you love somebody, you can't help but give. I can tell my wife, I love you. I can tell her every day. But you know, if I never helped out with the kids, if I never did anything around the house, if I never got her anything for her birthday or for anniversary or for Christmas, do you think she's going to believe me when I say that I love you? All right, I'll help you out. No, no, she will not. See, love requires giving. So let's bring it full circle now. Let's look finally this morning at John chapter 3 and verse 16. Notice what the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What was the greatest gift ever given? Jesus. Greatest gift. But it was also the greatest expression of love, that Jesus would come down from heaven, that he would be born as a man, that he would face the temptations and the persecutions, that he would endure rejection and betrayal, that he would die a violent death on the cross because he loved us that much. He loved, so he gave. And I know this is a message this morning on on money and financial stewardship, but man, if you're in this room this morning, if you're watching online and you say, Nate, there's not been a time in my life where I have accepted Jesus' gift of salvation, then man, can I encourage you this morning to make that commitment? If you have questions to talk to somebody, to talk to a Pastor Fount, to talk to one of the pastors here on staff, but what a great way to start 2021. Walking in a new life. Walking in the Spirit. Walking in the way of the Lord. So, what does the Bible say about giving? It's an act of worship. Remember, Moses Lake Baptist Church, when you give, when you have a part in, in offering and your tithe and missions and building fund, yes, it's a financial transaction, but you're showing your worship to the Lord. You're expressing your worship. We're Giving, when we give, we're acting by faith. We're acknowledging that God's going to provide, and not only that, the money that I'm giving, it's an eternal investment. It's not lost. It's something that I'm laying up in heaven. And when we give, we're showing our love for him. We love him because he first loved us. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. And if you'd like any further information about our church, We'd like to encourage you to visit mlbc.church.